spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another uh, Tuesday evening, reflecting into the richness of the history of our faith. If you are a faithful listener, you know that each and every Tuesday, uh, we have been taking up the great ancient Christian thinkers. Uh, This has afforded us the opportunity to really get to know the origins of our Christian faith. And once again, it is Tuesday, so I have John O'Hare joining me. John, it is great to have you with me another Tuesday evening. Thank you, Joe. Uh, John, I was thinking before we went on air, right before we went on air, it would be good to go back into the first few weeks before we get into this great figure, Tertullian, the theological and apologetic giant from the uh, late second century, early third century that we will study tonight. Uh, And the first two weeks was really about uh, what is history and why we should study history. I thought before we take up uh, some extensive treatment of history, we should first examine what is history and why we should study history. So, you know, what is history? We have that great quote from Uh, now St. John Paul II, right, that history is not some fixed uh, progression of events towards what is better, but an event of freedom. And in that moment, what John Paul does is he affords us a a reflection to look at history, not as something abstract, really, but something that is personal, something that is about the human person. And uh, I also mentioned a historian way back, who says that if you don't know history, it's like going through life with Alzheimer's. You yes. really don't know what's happening. Yes. And there's a TV news show in which one of the people asks men on the street various questions about, fundamental questions about our country, and they have the slightest idea, and yeah. these are adults, and I'm thinking, wow, yeah. you know? Yeah, history does not spring forth from non-event. And in each and every moment in history that we study today, it is driven by the human person. There's a protagonist and there's an antagonist, right? Every story, uh, every drama has uh, the good and the evil. And certainly um, our story, our Christian story, and this, the larger story of salvation history certainly has that. And so, you know, why study it, uh, John? Well, in the first week of, of our time together, I had shared the story about an assignment I had given my sixth graders. And they had, a, they had to do the family tree And I gave them three weeks to prepare this family tree. And I said, yeah, it's fine. Go ahead and work with your parents. And what I witnessed in those three weeks was uh, amazing. It it blew me away. What I saw was just not the kids, but also the parents get into their history like by their own admission they had never before. It was striking. So when they came together to present their family tree, they did so with passion. They did so with a new meaning, new purpose in life. It was striking. I remember asking one father, why were you so excited about this? And he looked at me and said, you know, Joe, to come to understand the tenacity of those who have gone before me to make my life possible has given impetus to a, a new drive for me, a new meaning in my life. And I really think that that is really what lies behind the question of why we should study history. 
once we know where we uh, came from and once we become more familiar with those who have made the sacrifices that they've made, yeah, we are going to live a more purpose-driven life. In a sense, the church is our community in the sense that we see people there, we go there regularly, and it has a history. Churches have histories, and that history affects us why we're here today, believing what we do. Those women and men that went before us had a lot to do with our liturgy, our doctrine, and our holiness. Amen. And so, yeah, it is important to get to know those who have gone before us. I mean, we have been studying the likes of, yes, the apostles, but also Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch and St. Polycarp and Irenaeus and St. Justin and all of these great figures. And we study them, John, because they show us how to do it right. How to both live the faith and defend the faith and teach the faith. They show us. And so, yeah, why not draw from their example, from their wisdom, from their insight in how to do it? Each and every one of us, John, we, we have our trials. We have our storms. And they face theirs. And they show us how to navigate uh, those storms and so as to be a better Christian, uh, a better human being. Their times were as rough as ours. That's right. That's right. And and we should never forget that. I mean, we're going to be talking about uh, this great figure, Tertullian, today, and he is living in the heart of Christian persecution. So, yeah, I mean, he is living in a time where there was a great deal of criticism for the fact that he called himself a Christian, right? So whether it be uh, 200 AD or 2014, yeah, the, there are times before us that uh, define us. And so we have to say, yes, our free will, right? The event of freedom has to be caught up in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, Tertullian, his full name is Quintus Septimus Florens Tertullianus. He was say born... that three times. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, well. um, anyway, he was born around 150 to 160. And he lived to between 240 and 250, so he lived a long time. And he was born in Carthage, that would be the present-day country of around Tunis, maybe Algeria. His parents were somewhat well-to-do, and he had a very good legal education. And he uh, converted to the church uh, from his paganism, and he is the first major writer to write in Latin. So mm-hmm. Greek was kind of getting left behind starting now, at least in the West. And he had three... Uh, writing periods. His Catholic period went from about 197 to 206. Then his semi-Montanist period went from about 206 to 212. And then from about 212 to 220, we had his Montanist. That was a heresy period. Mm -hmm. And we don't hear about him again from 220 until his death. Mm -hmm. There just is no writing. He left a lot of writing, and he was widely quoted. Now, I think we might want to mention Montanism. That was a heresy that came around. And uh, what was it? Well, when Christ ascended into heaven, a lot of the apostles and Christians believed that uh, Christ was coming again soon. And when he didn't come again soon, uh, it began to dawn on people. They were going to have to have a church with authority. They were going to have to keep Christ's words together. Mm -hmm. And so here you have a clergy getting together. And it just wasn't, I had to use the word hang loose. It used to be, you had to have a clergy. And the Montanists were kind of, not too keen into that. They wanted to have their prophets and their prophetesses making uh, doctrine, and that was not going over well. And those were the Montanists and Tertullian 
kind of went off with them, at least for a while. Mm-hmm. Notice he's not Saint Tertullian. That's he right. Saint yeah. Justin Martyr. That's right. Tertullian is not a canonized saint. Yeah, and one of his uh, chief teachings, uh, among so many others, John, was his teaching on the Trinity. In fact, he was the first a church father to coin the term Trinity, Trinitas, of course, in the Latin. His Latin. So uh, what was his focus? Well, his focus was on the idea of the Trinity being three persons, right? Three persons, one substance. Now, I'm not going to go crazy on this in the radio here, theologically or philosophically, but I do think, John, there's a point to be had as he talks about the Trinity as it relates to substance and essence. Generally speaking... What do we mean to say when we talk about the Trinity? Certainly a definition that comes from Tertullian. At its core, the Trinity is the Father eternally loving His Son, and the Son, in turn, eternally loving the Father, which gives life to the Holy Spirit, the love shared between the Father and the Son. So if we've never had a teaching on the Trinity, let us know that the Holy Spirit is the love shared between the Father and the Son. A love that is so real that for the likes of Tertullian, that is a person. Now, for him to talk about this within the context of substance and essence, uh, how can we better understand this? Well, maybe, uh, John, we can use the image of sap, okay? Sap is an image that really lies underneath the word grace. Grace is uh, what we receive in our baptism, the grace and the virtues of faith, hope, and love. It is the life-giving force that really is the love shared between the Father and the Son. Why talk about sap? Well, what is sap? Sap is what comes from the tree. Sap within it has nutrients, uh, the water from the tree, even the hormones of the tree. It has in its essence, John, all of the life-giving properties that rightfully belong to the tree. Grace is uh, the sap of God. It possesses all of the life-giving force that comes from the Trinity. So, and again, for every analogy to where we might come to understand something better, there's always, there's always that truth that it's going to come up short, but we use them nonetheless, right? Sap is uh, like the love that we receive in our baptism. And I, I go there because it it's, a, it's an image that kind of, kind of grabs hold of substance or essence. Yes, substantia was a Latin word. Yes. And that was a legal word which meant property uh, or had something to do with property. And he kind of changed it a little bit so it meant shared essence. So mm-hmm. substantial, and then we have in the creed uh, Christ and God the Father, co-substantial. Yes. Consubstantial, and that, that is his, his writing. I That's mean, he right. didn't write the Nicene Creed, but that he, it was his... Uh, using the word substance that let this in. Mm-hmm. And if I could just go on a little bit. Sure, sure. Uh, he used the word person, persona. Now that is a mask that actors used, and it covered the face. Yes. But the way he used it, it meant the really important thing, not just the covering of the face that made uh, the actor look like a different person, but this was the real deeper, per, the real deeper essence of mm-hmm. the person. Yes. And so he used the word person, and that theological ways, where he brings in the word substance and the word person, both of which have something to do with the Trinity. And I really think, you know, that point you made, John, shared essence, really, again, gets to the heart of what the Trinity is about, that essence being the love shared between 
the Father and the Son, that that love that is the Holy Spirit that gives us life, right? And you mentioned the word sap. We're made in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. That sap can flow through us. That's right. Amen. So you had mentioned the Latin, and I think there's a very important point for all of our listeners out there as it relates to what Tertullian gives us. He is the first. We talked about the importance of history, John. He is the first church father for all Christians out there to use the word testament as it relates to the book. Yes. Okay. Remember what we've talked about before. When Christ is in the upper room, he says what? This is the blood of the new covenant translated by some today as New Testament. The idea was essentially the sacrament of the Eucharist was the New Testament. The idea of the New Testament tied to a book doesn't come along until Tertullian. And actually, he uses the word instrumentum in Latin, which is a legal document. Again, he is a legal scholar, and so he thinks like a lawyer. In fact, in many of his cases, he goes out and he he, he defends the faith as a lawyer would defend, right? I love uh, many of his works because he's so clear, he's so systematic. So he's the first to use the word testament, testamentum, and he begins to use the word instrumentum and testamentum interchangeably. It's most fascinating. So uh, that is at the beginning of this, uh, the third century. Um, and so by mid-third century, you see the language of the New Testament being used more often. But it wasn't until Tertullian uh, picked up the word testamentum that really was a translation, weak translation, but translation nonetheless of the Greek diatheke, which is the, the covenant, right? We have talked about ad nauseum here on the radio, John, about when we say Old Testament, New Testament, yes. we can also say Old Covenant, New Covenant. Covenant is family bond. When we hear the word testament, usually, well, what do we think of? Someone who is testifying on behalf of something or someone. So what's going on here, John? Simply put, our Lord, when he came here on earth, came to testify and at once reveal the meaning of the Father's love. So when we talk about Old Testament, yes, it is right that we say Old Covenant or New Testament, New Covenant, because it is Jesus Christ who is testifying on behalf of the greatness of his Father's love for man. So John Tertullian really does emerge as an important person in the history of the development of the Bible and how we understand the Bible. So it's certainly important to note. We have also, John, talked about Tertullian in our first four months together because of the famous paraphrased quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. (laughs) I want to actually go to his work, which is called the Apologeticus, one of his great works, where he talks about this. And I think there's a wonderful point to be had here. So the historical context here, John, is he's writing uh, in response to the way in which the political authorities are persecuting the church. And uh, there are some people around him who say, you know, hey, to, to the politician, your cruelty serves no purpose. His response is this, on the contrary, for our community, it is an invitation We multiply every time one of us is mowed down. The blood of Christians is effective seed. So that's the actual verbiage Ah. there. The blood of Christians is effective seed. 
We've said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Here in the Apologeticus, literally translated from the Latin, the blood of Christians is effective seed. So I love this collectively. On the contrary for our community, it is an invitation. We multiply every time one of us is mowed down. The blood of Christians is effective seed. So the essence of what Tertullian is saying here is, in the act of martyrdom, suffering for truth is an act that is victorious because people see it and they look at that. And, you know, Pope Benedict XVI once said that, you know, we can offer up so many sound proofs and invitations to the existence of God, but there's only one lasting proof, and that is when man lays down his life for Jesus Christ. Very interesting. That is what he's talking about. You know, one, this is a little off topic. One of his famous quotes is, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. And Tertullian, bright as he was, and what a great writer he was, did not think that philosophy was particularly helpful to his search for truth in Christianity, because if you got into philosophy, you could easily get off track. Mm -hmm. So he concentrated on scripture, and he concentrated on tradition that was already around in the church. Yeah, that's right. And he certainly always went back to the person of uh, Jesus Christ, which, of course, this is what's being highlighted in uh, this quote, you know, the blood of Christians is effective seed. He's a great teacher. You know, he studied uh, rhetoric. And I wanted to make another point as it relates to Tertullian, John, and that is how he taught. He offers up on a number of occasions what we would call antitheses, or in another way, paradoxes, okay? Our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters uh, 5 and 6, he has six antitheses. What are these? You have heard it said, but I also say to you now, it is taking one thing and showing its opposite so that we might come to understand what the teacher wants us to understand. An example from Tertullian's writings, he says, as it relates to the God of Christians whom we are called to adore, he is invisible, even if you see him, difficult to grasp, even if he is present through grace, inconceivable, even if the human senses can perceive him. Therefore, he is true and great. That's good writing. It is good writing, and I wanted to really highlight this because it's not only good writing, but for us, as we talk about, you know, the new evangelization in this age of the church, John, to be able to teach the faith, uh, certainly to live the faith, we need to do it in a way where it's going to evangelize the imagination. In how we speak and in how we write, we have the capacity to evangelize the imagination if we employ a type of teaching that draws the person in. And this is what Tertullian is doing. The whole Christian faith is filled with these antitheses or paradoxes. You know, where there's death, there is life. Where you're last, you are first. Yes. I mean, there's this constant need to see our faith within the context of this kind of juxtaposition, this kind of paradox, a paradoxical way of looking at it. You mentioned his apology. That is probably his most famous work. There's about 10 others that they are, feel are quite accurately his, mm-hmm. and he is widely quoted uh, throughout uh, this time period and for a century or so after he, uh, after he died. So, but he, he was just a marvelous writer, a wonderful mind. That's yeah. right. And so the question that begs to be asked, John, is what happened? What happened to Tertullian that he slipped into this heresy? Here you have a man who is a defender of the Trinity. He's a defender of 
Jesus Christ, true man, true God. So he's not going to slip into these these other major heresies of Gnosticism or Arianism or any of that. What happened? There is a wonderful summary given to us from the works of Benedict XVI, and this is what he has to say, and I want to offer up this whole paragraph because I do not think there is any way we can say it better. He says this, From the human viewpoint, one can undoubtedly speak of Tertullian's own drama. With the passing of years, he became increasingly exigent in regard to the Christians. That is to say, he demanded heroic behavior from them in every circumstance, above all under persecution. He was rigid in his positions. He did not withhold blunt criticism. And he inevitably ended by finding himself isolated. Besides, many questions still remain open uh, today about Tertullian, not only on Tertullian's theological and philosophical thought, but also on his attitude in regard to political institutions and pagan society. This great moral and intellectual personality, this man who made such a great contribution to Christian thought, makes me think deeply. I want to pause there. I love the fact that our Pope Emeritus is willing to say, this is a man who is flawed, but he still makes me think deeply. Was it not Tertullian that talked about the importance of heresy because of how it makes us think more critically about our faith? So important. There was a lot of persecution going on in the church, and uh, sometimes these Christians would burn their some of their scriptures, yeah. and they, at once the persecution passed, they were sorry, and Tertullian said, you cannot come back even if you are sorry. He was that much of a rigorist, you know? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, and that's really what got him into trouble. So, Benedict XVI goes on, one sees that in the end, he lacked the simplicity, the humility to integrate himself with the church, to accept his weakness, to be forbearing with others and himself. When one only sees his thoughts in all its greatness, in the end, it is precisely this greatness that is lost. The essential characteristic of a great theologian, how important is this, John? (laughs) The essential characteristic of a great theologian is the humility to remain with the church to accept his own and others' weaknesses because actually only God is all holy. We instead always need forgiveness. You know, Pope Francis has said on more than one occasion that theology always starts on bended knee. Wow. You know, theology always starts on bended knee. Every time, John, we break open scripture, every time we go to study the faith, wherever you are at in your faith out there, wherever you are at, every time it must start on bended knee. Because if we are going to gain insight into the Word of God, if we are going to gain access into the life of God as it comes to us from Scripture, we will do so by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that starts on bended knee. Yes, it does. Uh, These words are very important for us because not only does Benedict XVI himself exercise this humility in saying how this great figure humbles him and makes him think deeply, It is also a warning. He's also given us a warning. Don't get so far ahead of yourself that you have forgotten who you are as a son 
or daughter of God. And maybe we can close John with um, one last important reflection as it comes to us from Tertullian, and that is the way he talked about this great moral virtue of hope. Hope. Uh, Really, hope was very important to Tertullian. And he went so far as to say that uh, we should never look at hope as just in a, a, just a, a virtue in itself, but really something that involves every aspect of Christian existence. Mm. You know, what does he mean by that? Well, what is hope? Hope is, yes, the confident assurance, but it is, it is that and more. It is looking into the future, John, and seeing the potential of the yet unseen. If that truth permeates our very existence, what will happen? We'll look at each and every moment as something that is, well, we can say pregnant with eternal significance, something that is spilling over. If we live a life of hope that Tertullian really encouraged all Christians to abide by, it will permeate your whole existence in such a way where it will begin to define you. And yeah, when we begin to put this in the context of the potential of the yet unseen, to say, wow, this is what tomorrow can look like if I live today this way. I mean, that is a a different way of living today. You know, so many of us live today in uh, despair. So many of us uh, feel oppressed to regain that sense of hope in our lives, that virtue of hope, that, that virtue actually uh, begins to shape and form everything that we do, then we can begin to appreciate what Tertullian is after here, uh, especially as he's talking about this in the context of the resurrection. I mean, the historical context of what he's uh, talking about here is a defense um, towards the re- uh, resurrection, you know, towards the meaning of new life. Mm-hmm. And so as, as he's talking about the importance of new life, he goes to the virtue of hope so that we might uh, better understand the importance of the resurrection. He reminded me a little bit of the, some of the problems that some very bright people have even today. He was the celebrity of his time, and people came to him, and uh, he was the voice of Montanism. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to be named after him, but he just got a little bit, I don't say he went, got full of himself, but he just got a little bit too far out and didn't realize it. He is one who thought heresy was good because it forced doctrine to prove itself. Yeah. And he kind of couldn't, couldn't, come, couldn't face it when it happened to him. Well, and that's why Benedict XVI says what he says as it relates to humility. And that's really why those words are a warning, John, to you and I and all of us. We cannot get ahead of ourselves. And so with that point, we can wrap up our program. Good program, John. Um, let us close in prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and never shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.